Coming up in this episode, terrorism. The U.S. is still searching for the right recipe of messaging and actions to stop terror attacks. And one expert says they still haven't found the right mix. And I'm afraid that many of our policy actions feed into the story that they like to tell, that the United States is against all Muslims and against Islam. Martha Crenshaw, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, lays out the problems and some of the answers in her new book, Countering Terrorism, coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by TrueCar. In order to feel comfortable that you're getting a fair price, you need pricing context, information that empowers you to feel confident. With TrueCar, you'll see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local TrueCar certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. Once you register with TrueCar, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you by a TrueCar certified dealer for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership, so you can feel confident when you show up. With TrueCar, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing, so you can enjoy that quick and easy buying experience. TrueCar users save an average of more than $3,000 off MSRP. More than 3 million cars have been sold to TrueCar users by the TrueCar Certified Dealer Network. And there are more than 13,000 TrueCar Certified Dealers nationwide. So when you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Our guest today is Martha Crenshaw, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. She's the co-author of a new book called Countering Terrorism, No Simple Solutions. It's a critical look at the strategies used to understand and counter terrorism throughout the years. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Crenshaw, for joining us. Uh, the first thing I'd like to ask you right off the bat, when it comes to messaging and recruiting, do you think terrorists are winning that battle? Well, I certainly think that we have not found a very good way of countering their narrative. We have talked for years about developing some sort of counter-narrative, which in itself says that we are having to counter what they say and that they are taking the lead in this ideological battle. And I'm afraid that many of our policy actions feed into the story that they like to tell, that the United States is against all Muslims and against Islam, rather than specifically against organizations such as ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Now, you've written a very interesting book called Countering Terrorism. 
And uh, you and your co-author talk specifically about some of the problems that you sort of uh, alluded to a bit there. But dig into a little bit more about what you think the problem has been in terms of countering the terrorist message in the United States and in the West. Well, what we look at in this book is what it is about terrorism itself that makes it such a difficult policy problem. We're not trying to attack any particular political party or administration or institution within the government. We're saying terrorism is just a really hard problem, and why is that so? And one of the reasons is that uh, terrorist attacks, particularly on the U.S. homeland, are actually very rare, and yet we tend to respond very emotionally and we tend indeed to be uh, tempted to over-respond to what are rare actions. That is, we are tempted to interpret them as part of a pattern that if it happened today it's going to happen tomorrow when these attacks, particularly attacks that kill large numbers of civilians, are very rare indeed and we argue that you have to keep that in mind. If you look specifically at the United States, we have tracked attacks on the U.S. homeland as well as plots to attack the U.S. homeland since 1993 and by jihadists, not the far right, not other groups. And there really uh, may be in that period of time, which is a long period of time, perhaps a max of 120 attacks or plots, again, since 1993. Uh, this is not a large number of attacks. The U.S. homeland is actually quite secure. And most of these attacks came from what we call homegrown terrorism. These are not necessarily immigrants. There are no refugees among them. Uh, sometimes there are people who've converted to Islam. There are sometimes people who've had mental problems, who've been involved in crime. In other words, uh, a, a, I might say a marginal set of people by and large, and pretty much unpredictable. Let me let me ask you this question then. Um, and you've talked a little bit about what you've found, uh, you know, in, in examining uh, all, all of those plots. And, and um, it's my understanding that you have taken a look at some, uh, what is it, a hundred, more than a hundred thousand um, terrorist attacks that have occurred around the world since 1970, and you've come up with 120 essential plots against the U.S. And that's that's saying that's saying something quite loud and clear about the the safety and security of the U.S., but still we're facing an evolving issue. So what are some of the key takeaways that you've gotten from your study when you look at the evolution of terrorism? Well, uh, let me put a little background on that. We do have something called the Global Terrorism Database, which is publicly available. Anybody, any of your listeners can access it. It is free. It doesn't charge. And it includes incidents of terrorism from all sources all over the world since 1970. Uh, it's a, a wonderful resource. Again, it's at the University of Maryland at the START Center, the Global Terrorism Database that we refer to as the GTD. So uh, we do have that data that shows, again, terrorism everywhere worldwide for a very, very long period of time. Uh, we also have data specifically on attacks and plots against the U.S. homeland. So that would exclude attacks, say, on U.S. embassies or military installations abroad, because we think that attacks on the homeland are the most serious, not that others are not 
serious. But what we argue is that it, even if you look at uh, the very, very broad range of all terrorism pretty much since 1970, uh, you see a lot of interesting things. And one is that many incidents of terrorism don't kill people at all. Uh, you might ask, why is that? Well, sometimes the perpetrators intended to, and they didn't wind up, fortunately, actually killing the people they wanted to. Uh, we also find that the majority of terrorist attacks are not claimed by any named organization. Uh, we find that it's very difficult to attribute responsibility for these attacks. That we often don't know who did it, even if Americans are killed, for example. Uh, you can look at cases that even went into the courts and were in the courts for years and are still uncertain. For example, for example, Libya's responsibility for Pan Am 103 in 1988, uh, that is still a matter of contention. So it's really very difficult to track down who did it. And if it's difficult to track down who did it, it's difficult to punish them. Okay. One question I'd like to ask you in listening to that, um, if you can't track them down and can't punish them, there's this possibility that you could deter people from engaging in the very first place, and that's counterterrorism messaging. Um, so one of the things that I've heard, and it's a repeated theme that I've been hearing a lot lately, is that the government should not be in the business of counterterrorism messaging. What's your view on that? Well, certainly a lot of people have argued that the American government is really not a credible source for messaging. Uh, we've certainly had a lot of difficulties in the State Department with their offices that were trying to develop the appropriate message. Do you stress the atrocities that the other side is committing? Uh, do you stress the benefits of our side? Do we know what our adversary values so that we can stress something that would be meaningful to them. Uh, we've had a lot of difficulties and that's led a lot of people to think that the people who ought to be doing the messages are people who are in themselves closer to the belief system that we are trying to argue against and that these would have to be uh, authority figures who are themselves Muslims, uh, that it should come from within Islam and indeed that it should be the leaders of moderate Muslim countries, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Jordan, Morocco, uh, Tunisia, uh, who, who, are, who are developing the message that they would be a much more credible and much more knowledgeable source. Well, what about the problem that we've had over time about some people in some of these groups that don't necessarily step up? to um, to uh, speak out against terrorism. How do you deal with that? Well, uh, there's, there's a number of things to be said about that. And the first thing to remember is that the majority of the victims of jihadist terrorism are themselves Muslims. You look at Syria, you look at Iraq, you look at Tunisia, you look at Mali, you look at Algeria, uh, you look at even Saudi Arabia, Yemen, the majority of victims are themselves Muslim. And uh, as we all know, the uh, Islamist jihadist phenomenon takes on a distinctly sectarian dimension in that it is a Sunni Muslim phenomenon and they hate Shia Muslims who form a large portion of their victims, uh, particularly in Iraq where sectarianism has been extremely 
uh, extremely rampant. Uh, the same thing is true uh, in uh, Pakistan. And also, uh, people have spoken up, but in many situations like, for example, Pakistan, it is at enormous personal risk uh, to themselves. Uh, recently, for example, someone uh, in Myanmar who was a Muslim uh, was killed. Uh, moderate Muslims have been killed in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in India, uh, in other settings. So people do speak up, but I think that many people in the United States have, have hoped that we could encourage them uh, to speak up more. Uh, I'm not sure that banning uh, citizens of these countries is a good way of getting moderates to speak up. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'd like to do before uh, our time runs out today is you spoke specifically uh, in, in your in your work here about three key principles that have emerged from your research. And you kind of touched on one of them a, a moment ago about resisting the temptation to magnify the image of destructive power, of the destructive power of terrorism, as well as the vulnerability of the targets. But there are a couple of other things as well, and that in, they include... Um, um, Prepare, pre preparing for change, disruption and surprise from terrorist groups, and also the U.S. needs to accept, its, uh, uh, accept limits to its ability to manage and control the jihadist threat. But first, um, preparing for change, disruption and surprise from terrorist groups. What do you mean there? Well, terrorism is a constantly evolving phenomenon. Uh, it, our terrorist adversaries are extremely adaptable. They are even sometimes extremely innovative, and they can change very, very, very quickly. They are extremely flexible in their strategy and their tactics, and we think that they probably learn from each other, learn from us. Uh, for example, you see changes such as the adoption of suicide bombing techniques, which began in about 1983. You didn't see the phenomenon. Before then, all of a sudden it caught on, and it's become the hallmark of al-Qaeda. Uh, we not notice a number of changes in their tactics over time. And what we argue in our book is that when you over-respond to terrorism and you put in place policies and institutions and rules and regulations, by a big government like the United States, it's very difficult to change when the adversary changes. You just cannot shift so quickly. And therefore, you want to try to remember that, that you want to be able to re retain some flexibility as they begin to shift and change tactics and adapt to you. And just remember that these are smaller, more fluid organizations, looser organizations, not enormous government bureaucracies, and to be prepared for them to change. How do you grade the U.S.'s um, uh, attempt to do that? Well, I don't think that we have always been uh, flexible. I think that's probably true across the board with most of the problems that we confront, that uh, the, you have to recognize the problem, you have to get a solution through the political process, uh, you have to implement it, and by the time you've done that, the problem may have changed enormously, because particularly in the case of terrorism, we're dealing actually with a very small number of people, and as I say, very fluid, amorphous sorts of organizations who range from individuals who are inspired by the appeal that comes over the internet to formal organizations with leaders whom we are striking with uh, drone strikes in order to try to degrade their organizations in between our social networks 
people who went to school together, people who are related by family. So it's extremely difficult even to pin down who the adversary is, where the attack will be coming from. Will it come, will it be in France, will it be in Belgium, will it be in Germany, will it be in the US, will it be in Britain? They can, they have the ability to just move very, very quickly. And also they have the ability to have networks in place, ready to strike when they think that the timing uh, is right. And of course, it's trying to keep those networks out of the United States that uh, that we are trying to do that. And as, as far as I can see, we, we don't have those kinds of embedded networks here in the United States. The situation really is quite different in Europe. And you say as well, the U.S. needs to accept limits to its ability to totally manage and control the jihadist threat. And you sort of talked about that a minute ago. But um, don't you have to give it the college try, no pun intended, but um, how do you do that? Well, we depend on our uh, our allies. For example, uh, we depend, depend on foreign countries to provide us uh, intelligence about plots that might be developing. For example, a few years ago there was a plot that was hatched in Yemen to send computer printers to targets in the United States. Uh, never mind why anybody wouldn't think it was sort of suspicious to send printers from Yemen to the U.S. when we are the ones who have printers. But at any rate, uh, the Saudi Arabia detected the plot and told uh, U.S. authorities. Uh, the so-called liquid explosives plot in 2006, it was a British who intercepted that plot and told us. So we depend on other countries to, to be watching all the time and to use their intelligence to inform us about what's going on. We depend on them to arrest uh, jihadist terrorists and put them in jail and keep them in jail. Uh, we depend on them to help us militarily. Uh, we're trying to help Iraq, for example, defeat the Islamic State. We're reaching out to allies in Syria. Uh, and also, if we look at the conditions that might be conducive to creating support for terrorism, you look, for example, at problems in Nigeria and the rise of Boko Haram, you'd say, well, the government of Nigeria really needs to do a whole lot better in terms of human rights, in terms of economic development, in terms of equality, uh, in terms of treatment of uh, religious minorities. But the United States government can't force the Nigerian government to, to make these reforms or to build state capacity. We can encourage, we can try to assist, but we can't make them do it. One more thing I'd like to ask you, you know, the world is changing, the, the view of the U.S. is changing as well, uh, and, you know, political changes here in the U.S. with, with standing, um, there are all sorts of signs and signals that the U.S. is not going to be the same player on the world stage it was, uh, say, 15, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, in the years ahead because of the aggressive nature of some of the U.S.'s uh, adversaries and even some of its allies and some of the U.S.'s own actions uh, that may encourage terrorists to think maybe we have an opportunity here. How does the U.S. view that and engage on it in a successful way? Well, I, I really don't think that the United States can retreat from the world stage, and I also don't think that we should retreat from the world stage. I think playing a leadership role uh, is important. Uh, I think that sometimes it may be the case that because the U.S. is, is such a prominent world power, 
still the superpower, that it does mean that adversaries see us as a very attractive target because we are uh, the most powerful, but at the same time the strongest representative of democratic values. And that's of course what we should be. So we should always stand up for those values. Uh, we should never ever back down on that in the face of terrorism. We should never give up uh, the fundamental principles of, of American democracy in the face of terrorism. And again, we should remember that the threat here to the United States at home is very, very, very small. Uh, we really don't want to react so emotionally that we withdraw from the world stage or we adopt policies that violate uh, our own principles in dealing with terrorism. We want to avoid exaggerating the threat of terrorism while, of course, trying to prevent it, uh, protecting ourselves. Uh, it's not to say that we, sh we should not do anything against terrorism. The Obama administration used drone strikes uh, extensively to try to degrade the leadership of organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda outside the country to keep them from organizing terrorism, to keep them from appealing for terrorism. So I think that we have a very important role to play and I think our allies depend on us and I don't think we should let them down. She is Dr. Martha Crenshaw. The book is called Countering Terrorism. This is Target USA. Dr. Crenshaw, thank you for taking time to join us today. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up in the next episode of Target USA. Late breaking news about the war on terror, Iran's nuclear program, North Korea's missiles, and Russian espionage. That and a special look at the state of U.S. national security. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hi, it's J.J. again. Help my podcast stay free to download with minimal ads. Fill out a short survey. Responses will help align the appropriate advertisers to my audience. It's short and completely anonymous. It takes no more than five minutes. There are two easy ways to do it. Go to www.podcastone.com slash mysurvey. That's one word, mysurvey. Or go to www.podcastone.com and click the survey banner. If you filled it out in the past, we thank you. But we still need you to do it again. You do all of us at Target USA and Podcast One a huge favor by filling it out. And thank you again for supporting Target USA and taking the time to complete the survey.